Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Uh, today, I am delighted to talk to Bassam Zawadi. You are most welcome, sir. Jazakallah uh, khair on Paul for having me as a guest on your channel. Uh, Bassam is a Muslim author uh, who writes extensively about issues related to Islamic apologetics and Islamic modernist discourse. His work can be found at www.calltomonotheism.com, his academia page, and his blog, islamicdiscoursedub.substack.com, which is well worth following. Now, I will link to them in the description below, so you can just click directly to those websites. Today, as you can probably guess uh, from the uh, presentation here, Bassam will be addressing the problem of hell, a subject that an increasing number of people, Muslims included, are uncomfortable about. So would you like to introduce us to this topic, Bassam? Yeah, uh, uh, thanks a lot for that introduction, Paul. Um, you know, the, the, the subject of hell is a difficult one for many of us. Uh, it stirs various kinds of emotions in people as it is meant to. Uh, it is a doctrine that has proven to be a major intellectual stumbling block for several people. Um, not, not only do atheists and deists uh, cite this doctrine as being one of the key reasons for rejecting religions such as Islam and Christianity, but even many believers who ascribe to religions you know, such as Christians and unfortunately even Muslims, feel greatly challenged reconciling the doctrine of hell with other creeds that they ascribe to, mm. such as the belief in an all-merciful and all-just God. The prominent Christian scholar Richard Bauckham said that since the 1800s, no traditional Christian doctrine has been so widely abandoned as that of eternal torment. Very true. Also, in a publication by the Commission of Doctrine of the Church of England, it states that over the last two centuries, the decline in the churches in the Western world of a belief in everlasting punishment has been one of the most notable transformations of Christian belief. The, the challenge posed by the doctrine of everlasting hell has, has prompted several Christian theologians and academics to resort to alternative models of, uh, or conceptions of punishment in the afterlife. So one, 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 one alternative that they've opted for is what is known as the separationist view of hell. So some embrace what is known as um, the separationist view of hell, whereby God does not punish non-believers with hell, with the punishment being um, sensorial and physically felt 
as, as has been traditionally believed, but rather that God completely separates himself from mm-hmm. non-believers in, in that they are alienated from him and are sort of doomed to being isolated yeah. for all eternity. And, uh, you know, one, one very popular Christian apologist, um, William Lane Craig, um, who is known to many, uh, actually adopts this view. Uh, I was actually, you know, reading one, a transcript of one of his debates mm-hmm. on hell around 15 years ago, and, and I saw that he uh, proposed this view, and he seemed that he adopted it. I think C.S. Lewis, the, the, probably the most celebrated Christian apologist of the 20th mm. century, also mm. uh, was, was sympathetic to that view as well, which, as you correctly point out, is actually abandoning the classical Christian doctrine, which is ironic yeah. given that he is the, the great defender of traditional Christian faith. Yeah, yeah. Another view that others are uh, embracing um, is annihilationism, mm-hmm. whereby God may or may not temporarily punish non-believers before eventually exterminating them into oblivion with no hope of ever re-emerging into existence uh, ever again. And those who are less mainstream opt for religious universalism or salvific pluralism and would reject the idea of salvific exclusivism altogether. When it comes to Muslims, we are seeing similar problems creeping into the Ummah, whereby some Muslims are resorting to embracing non-mainstream opinions in order to help them better grapple with the doctrine of hell. Mm. Being wary of all this um, has motivated me um, to, to take a fresh look at the subject of hell in Islam and to probe the, um, the, the, multif- the multifaceted layers and dimensions to the subject that have not really been fleshed out sufficiently before in the public discourse pertaining to this topic. So last year in 2021, uh, I exhaustively surveyed the philosophical and Islamic literature in Arabic and English on the problem of hell and subsequently shared my thoughts in a roughly four-hour lecture that is uploaded wow. on YouTube. Yeah. Four hours? <laughs> four hours, yeah. yeah that, must have been, that must have been pure hell for you. I mean, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, oh, I'll take the pun. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I called it the, the rationale of hell in Islam. And a, a transcript of the lecture can also be found on my academia page. Mm. along with the full bibliography of resources that I consulted during my research. Which I will link to, Uh, as I say. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, In this presentation today, inshallah, I plan to cover the topic in a more condensed manner. And if people feel that they are more interested in the more detailed lecture after listening to this, they could check out the lengthier lecture or the transcript. So, So as I'm speaking, if you find yourself saying... I wish Bassam spent a little more time on that point, or you feel you have a counter argument to what I said, then I'd highly recommend that you check out the more detailed lecture or transcript after listening to this. Because in my presentation today, I'll be prioritizing breadth over depth. So what do I plan to cover today? Um, We'll first start by briefly discussing what Islam teaches about hell as a quick refresher. And then we'll be talking about the morality of holding wrong beliefs. After that, we're going to discuss whether we can control our beliefs. And then we're going to say something about why shirk is so evil, according to Islam. 
And then we're going to go through some of the most popular objections to hell, and then we'll conclude, inshallah. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So what does Islam teach about hell? Now, I'm not going to dwell too long on this, you know, because as these views are not seriously disputed as being the mainstream position of Islam. So, yes, Islam teaches that hell is a punishment due for kufr or the unwarranted rejection of Islam, and I'll elaborate a bit more on what qualifies as unwarranted, uh, inshallah, and, and for sins that have not been forgiven by Allah. Right. Islam teaches that the punishment of hell is everlasting for disbelievers and temporary for sinful Muslims who have not been forgiven for their sins. And there are plenty of... Um, uh, scriptural proof texts from the Quran and Sunnah indicating this, which I've cited in my extended lecture. But again, these are not seriously disputed, so I don't really feel compelled to furnish any textual evidence at this point. Yeah. Thirdly, Islam teaches that the punishment of hell for kufr is retributive in nature, um, meaning it is a fitting punishment for kufr. So hell as a punishment for kufr is not for the purpose of rehabilitation or purification of the disbeliever so that he can later be integrated into the circle of Muslims living in paradise. Rather, the punishment is meted out in a manner that justly reflects the severity and extent of the crime of kufr because it is morally the correct thing to do. So it's more like retribution, as you say, rather than therapeutic or restorative. It, it's meant to punish in that very, uh, in that literal sense. It's meant to punish. Exactly. Exactly. It could be restorative and, and uh, uh, you know, therapeutic for the sinful Muslims yep. that are there. But for, for, but, but for kufr, given its everlasting nature, it is primarily retributive. And so kufr on its own is worthy of being punished for in that manner. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, emphasizes that point in the Quran yeah. uh, when he says, you know, uh, are you recompensed except for what you used to do? So you are being recompensed for your actions. The morality of holding wrong beliefs. 
When we think about morality, many of us primarily tend to think about actions and speech. Yeah. You know, like don't physically harm others. Don't abuse others. Don't incite violence. Don't cheat. Don't lie. Don't discriminate, etc. But what about beliefs devoid of harmful actions and speech? Can merely holding problematic beliefs make a person immoral, even if those beliefs do not result in any physical or emotional harm to mm. others? I'd argue that, yes, they can. So let, let, let's consider a few examples here. So let's, um, let's imagine you have sadists. Sadists who believe it is morally permissible to enjoy watching fellow innocent human beings suffering and getting tortured. Yet, yet, they believe that it is immoral and impermissible to cause that suffering or to encourage that suffering by paying others to, believe, uh, to, to torture people, for example. Right. So they believe, they believe that sadism is immoral in practice, but they believe that it is okay that once you have access to footage of people being tortured and suffering, to enjoy that footage. Gosh. So here you have a harmless sadist that plays no direct active role in supporting the suffering and torture of other human beings, yet relishes in and is gratified by the immorality of it all. Do we view this person to be immoral even though he keeps his sickening sadistic fantasies to himself. Wow. I would say that we most certainly do, and that we would also say that he ought, morally speaking, he ought not be a sadist. It is morally reprehensible to be a sadist, even if you don't engage in the active practice of harm, uh, but remain a silent spectator. It is still morally wrong. Another example, consider a racist. You have a racist who genuinely believes that his race is inherently superior to others. He believes that his race, in essence, is uh, elevated in self-worth in contrast to all other races. Yet he believes, at the same time, that it is wrong to utter racial slurs against others. And he also believes that it is wrong to discriminate racially against others in a manner that deprives them of their rights. So even though he believes that other races are inferior to his, he does not believe that it warrants treating them unjustly. But still, do we view this person to be immoral simply on account of him adopting his racist beliefs? I would say that most of us would say so. And that we would once again assert without hesitation that this racist ought not, morally speaking, hold these beliefs. So can wrong beliefs, independent of harming others through action and speech, make somebody immoral? Mm. Now, as I've tried to show in these two examples, and you can think of other examples if you don't think these examples are, are perfect. Um, I'm trying to show that the answer is yes, that people can be morally culpable merely for holding morally problematic views. This is important to understand when we move on 
to the immorality of kufr. I just want this principle to be clearly understood, uh, understood that yes, holding certain wrong beliefs, even if they do not result in the harm of others, can make you morally deficient. Now, is holding wrong religious beliefs immoral? We need to understand that roles are necessarily interlinked with responsibilities and obligations. We are obligated to do certain things by virtue of our rank and status. So, for example, a doctor, by virtue of being a doctor, is obligated to acquire and retain uh, accurate information that would um, enable him to treat his patients properly. Similarly, a, a, a teacher, by virtue of being a teacher, is obligated to um, uh, acquire and, uh, uh, and retain accurate information that would enable him to properly educate his students, and so on. It's a duty of each person to fulfill his duties properly. Likewise, human beings, by virtue of being free moral agents with an intellect created by God, are expected to acquire correct information concerning God's ordained laws so that we may accurately acknowledge his status and serve him in the manner he declares, he declares to be fitting for him. And the only way to do so is by holding correct religious beliefs about God, mm. as holding wrong religious beliefs about God would then be immoral. Why? I'd argue that there are at least three reasons from within the Islamic paradigm as to why holding wrong religious beliefs is morally problematic. First, it could result in rejecting elements of the objectively true moral standard. It's like asking, is it important that you know the rules of the company you work for or, or, or the laws of the country that you reside in? You know, what, what's, what's wrong with being blissfully ignorant about all these rules and yeah. laws? Well, other than the fact that we naturally tend to recognize the official status of those in authority and, and seek to respect their rules, we also do not wish to face any consequences for breaking any rules or any laws. Hmm. And if there is a God who created the universe and also acts as a moral legislator by having established a moral order of law, we would want to ensure that we come to know that moral code that he has instituted and imposed upon us. And if we end up following a wrong moral code because we followed a wrong religion, that would entail that we have inadvertently or, or otherwise allowed ourselves in reality to violate aspects of this binding moral law, which in turn is morally problematic. Secondly, we need to know our standing with God. Mm. Are we the friends of God? Are we the allies of God? Are we the puppets of God? Are we the servants of God? Are we the spiritual children of God? What are we in relation to God? Are we all these things or are we some of these things? 
Or are we none of these things? You know, what, what's the nature of our relationship with him? Should we love him? Should we fear him? Should we strike a balance between the two? We need to know where we stand, because if we have the wrong conception of God by following the wrong religion, we may end up not treating God and orienting our behavior toward this God in a manner befitting of him and not treating others the way they deserve to be treated is morally problematic. And thirdly, most importantly, having wrong religious beliefs could result in failing to give God his due rights, the most important being soul worship to him. So for these reasons, we can see that in order to correctly fulfill our obligations to God, it is essential that we hold correct religious beliefs. Human beings ought to find out what God says about their purpose of living and whether there is a path to salvation and whether we are indebted to God by worshiping him in return for his blessing us with existence and our ability to rationalize and enjoy many pleasures of this world and, and so on. But now two objections could be raised. One objection could be that, you know, people can't control what they believe. You know, there's no on and off switch for belief and it's immoral for God. The claim goes uh, to punish people for things beyond their control. Secondly, shirk is not that big of a deal. Um, God is infinitely powerful and, and glorious regardless of whether we worship him or not. And he can't be harmed. Therefore, it's not warranted, the charge goes, that, that, that he punishes people for directing worship to other than him. So let's take a look at these two objections, this comment on them, right? So first of all, can we control our beliefs? Do we have direct control over our beliefs? So can, like, can, I, can I snap my finger and force myself to believe in something that I do not really believe in? You know, can you choose to believe or disbelieve in something at instant will? Generally speaking, keeping some minor exceptions aside, the answer is no. We do not have the ability to immediately believe in something at the snap of a finger. As for indirect control over our beliefs, then yes, this is, this is something fairly uncontroversial. Indirect control over our beliefs entails taking actions or putting ourselves into situations and circumstances that would then influence how we believe how we believe. So, for example, you know, um, researching and learning about a given topic would surely influence your beliefs regarding that subject, just as neglecting to educate yourself about a particular subject would impact how well, well informed you are about it. And refusal to contemplate certain matters would result in not taking them seriously enough. And, and very likely having a deficient or distorted conception 
of those matters, and so on. Similarly, we can choose our friends and choose our circumstances and choose so many other factors that directly impact how we behave and, and how we think and what we stand up for and, and care about. Do you want to be a spiritual person? Well, then you need to make the conscious decision to strive to choose to put yourself in settings that would cultivate that. And if you don't bother to even try to make those changes, this would indicate that you do not sufficiently care about growing spiritually. So you're, you don't you're, care. you're saying, sorry, just to clarify the obvious, you're saying not activating these choices to uh, increase one's knowledge is itself a decision and a choice. Uh, it's not, it's the abandonment of choice is a decision, which is morally culpable. It, we are morally responsible beings, whether or not we choose to do the right thing, we are morally, morally responsible, just as we are for every aspect of our lives. Our beliefs are controllable to the extent that we can activate those choices that you list there, and we are morally responsible for them. It's a very interesting way of looking at it. So just to clarify for myself. Oh, yeah, no, no, uh, no, no. I mean, uh, you put it very aptly. And uh, if I could maybe just, uh, you know, summarize it, uh, I could say we could say that look, there are means that people could take to influence their belief or disbelief. Mm, mm, mm. So can we directly influence our belief by skipping over the means? Yeah. The answer is generally no. But do we have the voluntary will to activate those means that would eventually affect the result, the end result of what we believe? Yes. And it's for that that we are responsible right. and, uh, and, and uh, that for what we will be uh, held accountable. That's helpful. Um, you know, the same applies to searching for the true religion reve revealed by God. You know, are there people who willfully make themselves ignorant about religious truth as a result of indifference to it? Yes. And, uh, you know, are there people who willfully refuse to embark on a quest to acquiring religious truth, whether out of fear of losing social status uh, and breaking of family ties? Yes. And are there people who are so arrogant and stubborn to concede that they are wrong? that it prevents them from contemplating in a serious manner whether the beliefs they are currently holding are indeed approved by God? Absolutely. Moreover, there are those who just don't take the issue of religious truth seriously enough. If you spend more time researching and, and are more factually driven in your decision-making process when making decisions such as uh, you know, uh, buying a house or investing in certain stocks or cryptocurrencies or, or buying a car, you know, rather than trying to discover the true religion conveyed by God, then that demonstrates that you don't care enough, that you don't have your priorities straight. Or you have those who spend countless hours watching movies and shows on Netflix or playing video games or just really wasting too much time on idle and, and useless things without sparing even a tenth of that time to research into these big existential questions. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, الَّذِينَ اتَّخَذُوا دِينَهُمْ لَهْوًا وَلَعِبًا وَغَرَّتْهُمِ الْحَيَاةُ الدُّنْيَا You know, they, they are those who, who, who took their religion lightly and as a game, and they were deluded by the dunya. So these wrong attitudes 
and faulty character traits would surely impact what these people ultimately end up believing about God. So, and so, yes, even though there is no direct control over belief in the sense that some magical button could be pressed, could be pushed, and, and, and new beliefs are supernaturally instantly ingrained into us, nevertheless, the attitude toward wanting to know and embrace the truth is under our control. And that has a significant impact on what we ultimately end up believing. And so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructs the disbelievers in the Quran to believe in him and his messengers, he gives them a command to believe in him and his messengers. Believe in Allah and his messengers. We can now understand how such a command makes sense and what is expected of disbelievers in this divine command. So, so to conclude, the response to this objection is, yes, we may not directly control what we believe in the sense that we have the ability to instantly change our beliefs at will, but this does not change the fact that we willingly influence how we determine how to care about these issues. And that free will element is significant enough to make us morally accountable for the beliefs that we hold. Hmm. Islam teaches that Allah's guidance is essential for salvation, all right? whether that involves becoming guided to Islam or remaining faithful to Islam by not abandoning it. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and it is not for a soul to be able to have iman except by Allah's permission. But at the same time, Allah's guidance is contingent upon that person himself willing to believe and accept the truth. So Allah says, whoever wills to believe, let them believe. And whoever wills to disbelieve, let them disbelieve. So the non-believer must have a genuine desire to want to accept the truth at all costs, even if it means conceding that he was wrong about his religious beliefs and that he has to change his moral paradigm and lifestyle and, and, and even risk upsetting his family and friends. If that desire is truly there, then Allah would guide the non-believer by guiding him to undertake his research correctly and emboldening him to resist all challenges and, and obstacles that may, um, that may obstruct his path to accepting Islam. Allah would assist him by actualizing circumstances that make it more feasible for him to discover and attain the truth. But Allah's divine intervention would take place only if the person truly has that desire. Why is shirk so evil? At times, we, we, fail to, we, we fail to appreciate the, the, the gravity of certain sins. So take riba or, or interest, for example. It is one of the seven destructive sins of Islam. It is one of the seven destructive sins of Islam. Mm. Allah says that those who consume it 
should be should beware of war declared by Allah and his messenger. So God actually, in the Quran, God actually declares war yeah. on it. Yes, I, I, I mean, I remember coming off this, this ayah some time ago and being uh, quite shocked by the, the severity and the seriousness of this command, uh, which you correctly allude to. We, we don't appreciate how serious this matter is a lot of the time. Exactly. I mean, this, uh, despite this verse, hmm. why is it then that many Muslims do not frown upon those whose line of work entails engaging in promoting riba transactions mm. as they would a, I don't know, um, a, drug, a drug dealer, for example, yeah. you know? Uh, yeah. Well, well mm. it's because sometimes we fail to assess sins through the lens of the divine mm. and are heavily, heavily influenced by other factors, such as societal norms. And that is something all of us really need to be conscious of. Allah SWT declares shirk to be a great zulm or, or oppression. Discussing this ayah, um, Ibn al-Qayyim al-Jawziyyah um, insightfully pointed out that since oppression is that which, um, is that which obstructs security and guidance, that since oppression is that which obstructs security and guidance, Shirk is complete, absolute oppression. Um, because it absolutely hampers one's safety from Allah's wrath. And it also completely impedes one's path to salvation. But again, why is shirk so evil? And the Prophet, peace be upon him, is reporting Sahih al-Bukhari as ask, you know, asking one of his companions, what is the biggest sin in the sight of Allah? And then the Prophet went on to say, to set up rivals or those equal unto Allah, though he is the one who created you. In other words, shirk is so evil because the one who commits it has equalized between God, who is the ultimate source of our existence and sustenance with creatures who can barely look after themselves. This is the pinnacle of betrayal and ingratitude. Or, or even, and, I think it's like kind of spiritual treason against the Most High. It, it has that gravity uh, as the ultimate crime against God uh, in that sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, every being Every being is, in, is entitled to certain rights by virtue of his status and rank, right? So, so a, a parent is, owe, is owed certain rights by his children by virtue of him being a, a parent. Likewise, a teacher is entitled to be respected by his students by, by virtue of his rank and so on. Even you yourself could think about rights you believe you're entitled to and ponder over why you think you deserve those rights. And after you do that mental exercise, just know that Allah's right to being worshipped alone is just maximally greater than all that. Mm. The, the act of worship is meant to acknowledge the status of a maximally perfect being. And so to direct that worship to any other being 
would be a travesty of a travesty of rights of unspeakable and an utmost proportion. Now, one may acknowledge that shirk is a serious crime, but may still not concede that everlasting hell is a just punishment for it. Um, a number of arguments are raised, and so I'll be going through the most popular ones at a top-line level. And once again, if anyone's looking for more depth, they could refer to the extended lecture. So we'll start with the first the objection. Below. Yeah, in the link below, I was just going to say that people can... Great, great. Thanks for that. So, <laughs> um, so, so the first objection is the one from proportionality. Um, it would contend that every punishment must be proportional to the crime that was committed. And since the crime of kufr was committed temporarily in a limited amount of time by the disbeliever, um, it would not be just for the punishment for this temporary crime to be endless and permanent. All right. Um, first of all, the, the amount of time it took for a crime to occur has no significant bearing on the duration of the punishment. I mean, we won't say that just because someone committed murder in a matter of seconds that his due punishment should only last a few seconds as well, right? So the effects of crime could last much longer than the time it took for those crimes to be committed, right? So, um, you know, consider rape, for example. The trauma that the rape victim would continue to experience after such a horrific crime would last much longer than the minutes it took for the rape to take place. And so when it comes to shirk as a crime against God, it could very well be the case that such a crime inherits God's everlasting wrath. God is not a victim in that he was injured by this crime, but the fact remains that a maximal act of betrayal and ingratitude, an act of treason, as you put it, Paul, has still been committed against God, along with violating his right to solely be worshipped. And so as a result, he becomes angry and may very well, at this specific crime of shirk, be angry endlessly. And it is not our place to say what God could be or cannot be angry about forever. And as long as he's angry, that effect of the crime of shirk, his anger, committed against him, results in the unleashing of his wrath in the form of hell against those who have committed the crime of shirk. Secondly, we need to also assess the severity of crimes, not only by the very nature of the crimes themselves, but also by looking at the entity or being whom, whom the crime has been committed against. So, for example, we judge crimes committed against human beings to be more serious than those committed against animals. Why? Well, because we recognize that human beings, as, a, you know, as an ontological class of beings, are inherently superior to animals in terms of moral worth. 
Similarly, we view animals as superior to insects and so on. So a crime committed against a human being, even if equally committed against an animal, would still warrant a harsher punishment when it's committed against the human being. When it comes to God, his attributes and qualities are maximally quintessential. You know, he is qualitatively, infinitely perfect in his knowledge and, and supremacy and power and, and holiness. And in light of that, we deem Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be the one who is infinitely perfect in his dignity and honor, thus entailing that his status as a moral being is maximally perfect as well. Hence, we should not subject the assessment of punishments for crimes committed against God to our human conceptions of justice, because God is unique and infinitely different in a superior way to, to human beings and any other creatures. It's possible to say, even within the, our, our human scheme of things, if, if I was to gratuitously insult, God forbid, someone say at Speaker's Corner, God forbid, as I say, uh, <laughs> but if I was to do that, if I was to use the same formula against a king or the Queen of England or a, a great head of state, uh, the retribution would be far more serious. So even on the human level, there, there is this hierarchy and graded response. It's not, all, it's not all the same in practice at all, let alone, as you're saying, the, a maximally great majestic being who is ontologically uh, completely different from us uh, as well. But even on the human level, we have this uh, to insult the monarch. It, it could entail very severe consequences that wouldn't entail if I, God forbid, insulted a, a, a someone of equal rank to myself, shall we say? Yeah, and, and I mean the, the analogy that you used is actually, um, you know, uh, uh, one that was used by classical theologians like Saint Augustine, and even for, by Muslim theologians. The reason why I avoided that analogy is because there are modern egalitarian objections uh, uh, to I'm, that, I'm, whereby I'm not... <laughs> you know the king's honor should be equal to that of the peasant, and we're all human beings. So I'm not even going to bother with that analogy okay. and getting into that debate. So it, I'm just it works for me. ontological I'm, I'm, class of beings. Right? Fair enough. Fair enough. Ontologically, <laughs> no, it is a different... No. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, yeah. I do agree with you that, you know, some, you know, some human beings' status is definitely more, uh, you know, honored than others, but... Um, Anyway, yeah, I, yeah, I, I yeah. see why you didn't employ it, nevertheless. Obviously, as a Muslim, I would agree with you. I mean, insulting a prophet is not like insulting, exactly. you know, your, your little nephew, right? Like, it's... Uh, or nephew. I, I agree uh, no, with you exactly. about the thing because <laughs> of the, you know, how things have changed in, you know, in our, yeah, yeah, in our yeah. century. Uh, yeah, I just, I just stick to comparing on animals with human beings. And no, I, even, though I, you'll, even though you'll find people even equalizing between the two, but well, even they're, that, they're right? a minority. That people who think their dogs and their cats are members of the family and treat them like children. In other words, yeah. will be. I mean, this. Sorry, this happens <laughs> a lot in Britain and America. I've seen it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and 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 so you know, given um, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala's maximal moral worth, mm. the the ultimate crime of shirk committed against him should therefore be deemed a maximally grievous crime. Mm. And how do you punish and account? for one, committing a maximally or infinitely 
grievous crime. Well, the mainstream Islamic position states that enduring hell everlastingly is a fitting punishment for such a crime. Um, so much more could be hashed out on this particular point, but um, you know, again, uh, you know, people could refer to the extended lecture. But uh, this is the gist uh, of the response. <laughs> um, next objection is: How can God be all merciful and punish us with hell? Yes, you know, Allah is all merciful, but but He's also all just. And, you know, we should not look at Allah's attributes in independent isolation, but rather consider how all his attributes complement each other. Being all merciful does not entail that Allah exhibits his mercy unconditionally in an unrestricted manner to every single entity. Doing so... Sorry, that, that, by the way, just to, sorry, interrupt. That, that, by the way, is the principle of much or of virtually all Christian discourse now on the nature of God and, and the consequences for our lives in the afterlife. Uh, you get this in John Paul II, uh, a pope uh, and so on, who, who is universalist. Uh, hmm. Everyone would be saved because God is just mercy and loving, and that is it. Um, whereas the Quran is very clear, well, you're explaining, uh, should, we treat the, should God treat the righteous like the wicked? You know, people are not equal. They're not the same. And they're treated justly. Anyway, I don't want to anticipate what you're saying, but the, 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 this half of this equation is now exclusively affirmed by much of Christendom uh, to the detriment of the other half, which you're explaining as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself is, you know, is asking us, like, you know, should we treat those who yeah. believe and do good like those who make mischief throughout the land? Mm. Or should we treat the righteous like the wicked? Yeah. Now, some, some object by saying mm. that the Prophet, peace be upon him, said in a famous hadith that Allah is more merciful toward his servants than a mother who would never throw her child into the fire. Mm -hmm. How can that be the case when Allah is, in fact, willing to throw some of his servants into the fire. Well, as scholars such as Ibn Taymiyyah argue, it is Allah who has given us our mothers and instilled in them the mercy they have toward us. And given that Allah is the source of that very mercy, then he by default must be even more merciful. And in a famous hadith, the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, Allah created mercy in 100 parts, and he retained with him 99 parts. And he has set down upon the earth one part. And it is because of this one part that there is mutual love among the creation, so much so that the animal lifts up its hoof from its young one, fearing that it might harm it. Such a beautiful hadith, by the way. Absolutely. I mean, this, so this mercy on earth mm. between parents and their children, between siblings and between friends, all this mercy on this earth reflects the generic dimension of Allah's mercy that applies to everyone. 
mm. both believer mm. and non-believer. Right. And also in the Quran, the, the, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the Prophet as a, as, a, as a mercy sent to all mankind. And he also describes the rain as a kind of mercy and so on. Mm. And let's not forget all the blessings that we have. Our five senses, our relationships, our intellect, our very existence. All, the, all these things have been given to us by Allah's mercy and grace, not because we're entitled to them. So absolutely, Allah is all merciful because he is the very source of all mercy on earth itself. But because he is also just, he reserves a special kind of mercy for the believers in the form of everlasting bliss in paradise. And for those who reject Allah's mercy offered in the form of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and his message, they would be precluded from this special kind of mercy. Next objection is the geographic distribution problem. Yeah. Um, this is a very popular argument. Um, in the literature, it's also known as the demographics of theism problem. Um, and it basically goes something like this. Uh, you know, if you were born in Saudi Arabia, you'd most likely be a Muslim than if you were born in an atheist household in some Western country. Um, and this demonstrates that our religious beliefs are strongly linked to the circumstances of our birth, which are out of our control. And since our religious beliefs are strongly influenced by something beyond our control, it would be unjust for God to punish us for holding wrong religious beliefs, especially since all human beings are, are owed an equal chance at salvation. Um, so yeah, a number of points could be said. Um, first of all, God does not owe us anything. Like he, he could choose to make certain tests harder for others if he so willed. What's, so, what's essential ultimately is that Allah judges us fairly in accordance with his old attribute of, the, of divine justice. Allah says in the Quran that he will not place a burden upon people that they cannot bear. Thus, regardless of where we are born, Allah promises to judge everyone fairly. Secondly, people do convert to religions and apostatize from religions. Um, you know, people do abandon the traditions of their families and adopt different ideological belief systems. Look at how things have dramatically shifted in Western countries, which were fairly conservative Christian nations not too long ago. Look at how people abandon the conservative traditions of their parents and, and embrace atheism or deism uh, or subscribe to radically uh, divergent stances on matters pertaining to politics or ethics, uh, you know, other than what their parents brought them up to believe. Mm -hmm. So it is possible for people, especially when they get older and think for themselves, to look at what their parents taught them and say to themselves, that they disagree and, and have the courage to adopt different beliefs. So merely being born into a specific household or country does not necessitate that one 
clings on to the same beliefs he was brought up to embrace, you know, especially with the advent of the internet and, and being exposed to lots of information out there. So, so, I mean, the problem, the problem, however, is that people make very wrong decisions when they change their beliefs by, by failing to adopt uh, Islam uh, uh, as an alternative. Thirdly, you know, as we said earlier, we, we cannot ignore divine intervention. You know, we can't be looking at how human beliefs are formed and retained through a purely naturalistic lens. Allah does intervene. <clears throat> Allah does intervene to assist those with genuine desires to attain the truth by, by facilitating their religious inquiries and quest for the truth. Yeah. So such divine assistance transcends and overcomes any geographical barriers. True. Fourthly, how far do we want to go with this? Right? Like, do, do we want to excuse racists for being racists and remaining as racists simply because of their upbringing? Or, or, or do we do the sensible thing by acknowledging that this upbringing played a role in shaping his racist beliefs, but now that he's been exposed to arguments demonstrating that his beliefs are wrong, he's duty-bound to abandon them and concede that he's been wrong. We would do the latter. And, and, and Islam states that we should be consistent and apply the same standards when it comes to one who has been shown that his religious beliefs are wrong as well. The next objection is the sincerity objection. So basically the objection states that surely there must be sincere people out there who, who truly desire to acquire religious truth and uh, have looked into Islam, yet failed to be persuaded into adopting it. You know, some uh, misunderstood it, while others simply did not feel compelled by the evidence. And so can they be blamed if they did not find the evidence for Islam to be strong enough? And how about all the, the disinformation out there, which could confuse sincere people? We always have to keep coming back to this point that we have to bear in mind that Allah, Allah has promised that he would not bear people a burden that they cannot carry. This is something that, you know, we should not forget and that we trust that Allah SWT knows everyone's limits and capacities better than any of us. Secondly, we are in no position to comment on the sincerity of people. This is an internal matter of the heart, and it, and it does not suffice to judge people outwardly. You know, someone may outwardly appear to be researching tirelessly, but in his heart, this research of his could be driven by his ego to attain information that would help him um, confirm his current choice of belief, or, 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 or it's primarily driven to just find arguments to poke holes in other people's beliefs. This is in contrast to being genuinely open to the truth. Moreover, we don't really know how most people think about 
and approach religious inquiry, simply because we don't discuss these issues with most people. A lot of people don't speak to fellow students and co-workers about religion and politics because, you know, discussion of these two subjects is considered taboo in certain settings. So to make presumptions that, you know, that there are many people out there who are sincere uh, is actually, in fact, and I mean genuinely sincere um, in the sense that they are willing to sacrifice everything to discover religious truth. To make such an assumption is, in fact, not warranted uh, when it comes to uh, certain people that we think may fit that description outwardly, because we simply do not know. Thirdly, when it comes to misunderstanding Islam, we, we need to differentiate between misunderstanding essential elements of Islam and elements that are tertiary. So, you know, if someone, for example, fails to, if someone fails to understand the core messages of Islam, then yes, that person cannot be said to have actually rejected Islam. However, if there are some things that the person misunderstands regarding Islam, um, like, for example, the, the wisdom of why polygamy is uh, allowed for men but not women, or, or why Islam legislates the hudud punishments. Like, let's say the person cannot fully understand why Islam legislates this. This sort of misunderstanding or ignorance does not warrant rejecting Islam as these are not factual-based arguments. There's no factual argument one could give as to why God cannot have possibly legislated these things, as one cannot judge God by an external moral standard. People should be ready to submit to any of God's dictates without any preconditions, as long as there's good evidence demonstrating that God has legislated them. But to subject God to an already presumed standard of morality is, is the person ultimately having played the role of God himself. So such a misunderstanding of Islam, especially if it's ethics related, does not warrant rejecting Islam. So even if someone rejected Islam based on this misunderstanding or lack of understanding, he, is still, he could still be morally culpable because he has set preconditions for accepting Islam that he's not warranted in setting. Yep. Mm. Again, when it comes to disinformation and, and, and false propaganda, we need to be nuanced here. Are we speaking about people who have equal access to truthful sources of information along with being exposed to disinformation? Or are we speaking about some people in a remote island somewhere or in a country where censorship is extreme, like North Korea, for example, where people do not freely have access to truthful sources? If we're speaking about people who have access to both sources, well, even the kuffar during the lifetime of the prophet, peace be upon him, were exposed to false propaganda about him being a magician and fortune teller 
And not all of them witnessed with their own eyes the miracles of the prophet, peace be upon him. You know, many of them were in faraway tribes, but they heard rumors that he is a poet, that he is a, um, a fortune teller. But to choose to believe one source of information over the other requires a justification. Do we excuse people for racism and Zionism simply because they get their information from media spreading false propaganda? No, we do not. We do not because they willingly made the conscious decision to take their information from these sources, just as they willingly made the conscious decision to reject the evidence for the falseness of their stances from alternative sources. So we cannot be lax and afford people these blanket excuses to undermine the seriousness of their unwarranted beliefs. Same when it comes to Islam. People do hear negative things about Islam. Yes, but do they bother speaking to other Muslims about these issues? Did they read the Quran for themselves? Did they verify this information? Everybody knows, everybody knows that there are alternative sources of information opposing their own stance. Everyone knows this. Everyone knows that there's always some other media outlet that spreads information counter to what they believe. Everyone knows this. So why didn't these people put a little extra effort to verify? Are they not morally culpable for refusing to do so? Allah states that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states that in the afterlife, many who would go to hell, many who would go to hell would rebuke those who brainwashed them. Mm. And the response of those people who are being accused of doing the brainwashing um, will, will be, you know, you know, and, and uh, we, we had no authority over you. All right. Uh, you, you know, we, we spoke and we spread information, but, you know, we didn't force you to believe it. You're the one who swallowed the information, you know, uh, blindly without, without verifying what we said. And then Allah SWT says that both of them will be punished. The brainwasher and the brainwashed. Uh, they will both be punished. We're not little children who can't think for themselves. We are responsible and accountable for the information we willingly choose to believe and reject. However, if we're speaking about those who only have access to false information, well, yes, Islam does teach this notion of Ahlul Fatra, those who have not received the message of Islam in this life. And I've spoken in more detail um, about this issue in a separate lecture uh, on YouTube. It's called Deconstructing Religious Pluralism. Um, it's called Deconstructing Religious Pluralism. So I won't be rehashing much of what I said over there about the Ahlul Fatra. But yes, these are a, spe this is a special case and category of people. Fifthly, you know, when it comes to the matter of why there isn't sufficient evidence to compel uh, belief um, uh, 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 in Islam. We need to understand that Iman, having faith, 
involves more than just merely believing in the existence of Allah. It also entails loving and embracing him and devotedly submitting to his commands and trusting in him and acknowledging the, the superiority of his moral edicts. And, um, and uh, you know, and uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, you know, says uh, uh, in the Quran, you know, uh, Um, He's telling the Prophet, you know, they will never truly believe until they refer to you for judgment in the matter of their disputes. And they have no internal resistance in their hearts regarding your judgment, and they completely submit to it. This is true Iman. Mm. And Iblis believes in Allah's existence. Mm. Iblis knows that Islam is true. No one has been exposed to as much evidence for Islam being true as Iblis. But that doesn't do him any good. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also says, you know, وَلَوْ عَلِمَ اللَّهُ فِيهِمْ خَيْرًا لَأَسْمَعُهُمْ he says about a certain category of disbelievers, and, 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 and if Allah knew that there was any, any good in them, he would have had them here. But even if he did make them here, they would have still turned away in stubbornness. Several Quranic commentators said that hearing here, that Allah said that he would have made them here, Hearing here refers to hearing more evidences and proofs for Islam and understanding Islam better. However, Allah, due to his perfect knowledge, knows that even if certain disbelievers were further exposed to better evidence for Islam, that they would still reject it. And so Allah withheld that exposure to that evidence for them. The way Allah gives guidance to an individual is, is, proportional, is proportional to the disposition of that person's heart in terms of his desire to fully submit to the truth. Allah has promised guidance for such people. He would make the clarity of Islam's truth evident to the person in accordance with his willingness to be unconditionally receptive to the truth. Not someone who's setting preconditions. No, someone who's unconditionally receptive to the truth. Allah uses evidence for Islam as a cause or as a means to achieve this, but we cannot deny the supernatural intervention at play here. Moreover, there are scholars, there are scholars who are of the opinion, and this is an interesting opinion that I came across last year uh, when I was researching this, uh, but there are scholars who are of the opinion that if someone truly and correctly thought religious truth, but died before he became a Muslim, that Allah would forgive them. The, the idea being that they were on the correct trajectory in terms of their religious inquiry. Um, um, and, and so uh, they would have eventually accepted Islam if they lived longer. 
Allah knows best about the strength of this opinion, as I haven't really seen any textual evidence from the Quran and Sunnah for it, but that opinion um, is there. Mm. Um, lastly, sincerity is a single trait, right? But that, but that trait, it could be coupled with other traits, like, like, like arrogance, and disillusionment. Some people sincerely believe that God cannot have legislated certain things that do not fit with their moral paradigm, which is an arrogant claim to make, since they've already determined mm. what the moral code should be before acquiring validation from God. Moreover, you have sincere racists, sincere Zionists, sincere Islamophobes, and so on. You, you can't just hone in on sincerity alone as a character trait and ignore what other traits it is being coupled with or what beliefs and actions are being held and performed by that sincere individual. Sincere or not, as long as people are unjustifiably rejecting the truth, they are morally culpable. The final objection is the nobody chooses hell objection. So this objection is connected to the previous one on sincerity, which basically states that nobody in their right mind would, would choose hell. You know, why, who would actually willingly choose to burn in hell? You know, since, you know and since, since nobody would do such a thing, then clearly they are, they are sincere and genuinely misinformed and should therefore not be punished. Now, first of all, yes, it, it may be the case that people do not consciously say to themselves, yeah, I would like to burn in hell forever like that in you know, such an explicit and direct manner. However, some do choose to prioritize family and social status and, and materialistic pleasures over objective religious inquiry. Um, you know, some do choose to be apathetic about God and, and religious inquiry. Some do choose to place themselves or remain in places and circumstances that would impede their ability to carry out serious religious inquiry. And just, just on, on that point, there are a couple of uh, very well-known American philosophers, professors of philosophy who are atheists, who publicly stated on record that they choose to be atheists. They don't want God to exist. They don't want him to exist. And they choose atheism. This is not a question of truth. It's a question of a personal existential preference and a choice not to believe. Uh, because they have, they want other things. They don't want God to exist. And this is pure, uh, pure right word, kufa in a way. So here is a clear, direct choice not to believe. Um, uh, quite a remarkable confession. Some of these are very leading American uh, professors of philosophy have said this on record. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I, I, again, I, I've spoken to people, and I've all, and I've seen all these quotes that you're that you're alluding to. Yeah. Where people literally say, I do not wish to worship such a God, yeah. even if he does exist. Yeah. 
you know, and uh, uh, even uh, John Stuart Mill, one of the very most famous classical liberals um, and uh, famous, in, you know, uh, yeah. intellectual thinkers. He said, I refuse to believe in a God. I don't have the exact quote with me. I actually have the exact quote in the extended. Uh, I, I, I actually have the book here. <laughs> uh, John he, he, yeah. he explicitly says, I refuse to believe in a God that would burn people in hell. I would not worship him. And, uh, and he said, even if he is real, uh, 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 you know, to hell I'll go. So you find these kinds, the, 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 these, the, these sorts of claims, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I also mentioned, uh, I mentioned a personal anecdote uh, in my extended lecture. Maybe I could share it here right now as well. Um, where, you know, several years ago, um, I was working in a, in a company. And, you know, we had, we had a manager. Um, he was, uh, he was a non-believer. Uh, he was, he was atheist actually. And it was uh, Ramadan. And, um, and then, you know, uh, while we're working during the day, he's like, oh, I'm starving. Right. And this was like in the afternoon. And it was like just a couple of hours until, until sundown. And I was like, and I just jokingly said, I just jokingly said, um, you know, you might as well just fast with us, <laughs> you know, like you didn't eat anything the whole day. It's just a couple of hours until sundown. You know, you might as well just fast for today. I was, I was just joking with him, obviously. And our boss and our manager, you know, he was a really nice guy. He was a very hardworking individual, but I mean, he was, he was very kind to us. Um, so anyways, I... I went, I went to the bathroom and then I washed my hands and then suddenly he was, he walked behind me and he barged into the bathroom and, and then he looked at me and then he said, you know what, Bassam, I don't have a problem with fasting per se. What I do have a problem with is someone telling me to fast. No one tells me what to do. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Wow. Very interesting. Wow. Very I, and and I, I was like, wow. You know, and I was absolutely taken aback yeah. by that. Yeah. And, and, and this is what I was talking about earlier. Like, we never spoke about religion, right? We never, we don't speak about these issues at work, unfortunately, because there's also in a lot of workplace settings, a strict HR policy against speaking about these issues. Um, and, um, and so, but this just came out spontaneously. Around a month later, he passed away. He wow. passed away. He had a heart attack and, um, and, and, yeah, he, uh, it was cholesterol blocking his arteries or whatever. But I said to myself, subhanAllah, if that conversation did not happen, I would probably be like, oh, you know, he was such a nice guy. Mm. He was such a great guy. He was so kind to us. <laughs> Why didn't he accept Islam? Oh, God, you know, is he going to go to hell? How's God going to judge him? And, 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 because we're human beings and these natural sentiments come to us. But I saw that side of him 
yeah, yeah. by Allah's will. And I saw an arrogance in him that I would have never have guessed was ever in him. And this is the point I was trying to make earlier. You, we are not in any, we're in no place to talk about the sincerity of anybody. Yeah. You, you know, you, you, uh, oh, he's a good guy. My neighbor is always smiling and waving, waving back at me. And, and he's so kind, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people are kind. A lot of people are nice to fellow human beings. But you don't know their internal disposition mm. towards the truth and religious truth and, and submitting themselves to a higher power. You don't see that. You don't see those things. We don't have all these intimate discussions with, with, with most people. Mm. All right. And so you would be shocked and surprised to see the attitudes of such people when you actually engage in conversations with them. That's why when it comes to, oh, this, this guy was sincere, this guy was a good person, you are not the moral legislator to, to, to judge who is good. You have not set the moral standard. You do not know what's in people's hearts. Just trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he will take care of this judgment. And so, yeah, that was just kind of a side note. Uh, you know, yeah, thanks, thanks for sharing that. Just, that. To kind of, just to kind of emphasize, you know, yeah. where, where, where I'm coming from. So, Absolutely. you know, and, and, and so again, yeah, so, you know, and so yes, people do choose to, 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 to behave this way and to be, and to think like this. And it's for those decisions that they would be punished. Accountability here is interlinked with the person's willingness to perform those inexcusable actions and, and not with the person's full realization of the grim consequences of his actions. So even if he's not fully consciously wary that, yeah, I'm going to go end up in this hell, that doesn't matter. Just as it doesn't matter if someone committed a crime and we send them off to jail, but he really had no idea how bad jail and prison really is. Yeah. That's not relevant to the accountability factor. Or, he should have educated or, or, himself better about yeah. such content. I, I drive a car and look, I just want a few drinks. I just want to have several pints of lager. And, you know, it's not a big deal. Go out and you get involved in a crash and you kill five people. Mm, 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 sorry. Mm, yeah. In fact, you weren't thinking about it. You weren't aware of it. You weren't aware the gravity is not really the point. You should have been. <laughs> you should have been. Exactly. There, there was a stage. There was a point where there was free will. And it goes back to that point. So, yeah. So uh, let, 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 let's, let's take that, that drunk driver analogy, right? So the person, you know, um, uh, drinks heavily. Then he drives. And as he's driving, he loses control. And he kills someone crossing the road. At that point, you could say, well, when I killed him, I didn't have free will. I'm, I was out of control. Okay. Yeah. At that point you were, but prior to that, you willingly did something that led to your state of then being on, uh, you know, in the state of, uh, you know, not, of not having control and then, and then committing, um, you know, that, that, that horrific crime. So we could always go back to a certain point where there's a free will Hmm. element involved and it, that's where the accountability um, uh, is interlinked with secondly 
there is this idea of the weakness of the will, you know, where at times we, we, we allow our reason to yield to our passions and desires. And probably the, the clearest example I can give of this is the phenomenon of sinful Muslims. Muslims know that Islam is true. And they know that Islam teaches that they could potentially be punished for unforgivable sins, possibly even temporarily in hellfire itself. Muslims know this. They believe this to be factually true. Yet Muslims still sin. They behave irrationally by gambling with such a drastic fate, even if it's temporary. This is despite reading about the descriptions of hellfire and punishment of the grave in the Islamic sources. How do we even begin to rationalize or, or, or make sense of such irrationality? Clearly, there is a weakness of the will that is at play here. And if we can see it being exhibited by Muslims who already believe Islam is true, then it is not so shocking to see disbelievers behaving irrationally in a morally culpable manner by choosing not to take religious inquiry seriously. So yes, they're not choosing hell in the sense where they're saying, I want to go to hell. Well, some do, but they're an extreme minority, but they are choosing to not take religious inquiry seriously. Before concluding, um, um, uh, I, I just want to share you know, some of these uh, you know, resources where um, I've written or spoken about topics that are related um, you know, because I've been kind of focusing on an umbrella or a general theme of topics uh, that are interconnected over these past few years. The first one is a critique of deism. And uh, as many of you know, deism is the belief that God exists, but he doesn't intervene in our world. Um, and therefore, um, you know, uh, it's a rejection of organized religion, a rejection and belief in the doctrines of hell. A rejection of belief in miracles and whatnot. Um, I would say it would be it would be good to take a look at that. Uh, this is actually my master's thesis, by the way, so you could actually take a look at that. And in that article, I also address the problem of divine hiddenness. So divine hiddenness is also a popular philosophical objection, and I also tackle that objection uh, in in that article as well. You know, why isn't God revealing Himself? to everybody and making his existence more manifest. So I tackle that there. Um, another another uh, article that I wrote is, is called, is religion becoming outdated? So, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, are disinterested in religion as an, as an you know, as an, as an institution, you know, they're, they're not, they look, they look down at the idea of rituals and doctrines and they believe that spirituality should be, you know, whatever you feel to be subjective. I also tackle that um, in this article. Um, I also have a lecture on YouTube called Deconstructing Religious Pluralism. Um, in, that, in that lecture, 
I also tackle the, um, the, the, uh, I tackle the topic of salvific pluralism um, from irrational and, and textual, textual being from the Quran Sunnah uh, perspective. Mm. And yeah, and the <laughs> final one is the rationale of hell, which uh, Paul is linking to, yeah, um, uh, which is an extended, um, you know, uh, elaboration of what I was just speaking about uh, today. So uh, I would just like to conclude uh, with, 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 with two points. Um, and that is, first of all, we, we have to consciously um, distinguish between what we find to be uh, distasteful or, or emotionally unendurable versus what we find to be morally repulsive despite being very emotionally taxing, I, I've tried to argue in a very condensed manner today that the idea of hell is not morally repulsive and that a definitive intellectual argument cannot be constructed to demonstrate that God, even given his, his infinitely perfect attributes, um, would or, or could not punish disbelievers with hell. Secondly, we really, really need to place greater trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's justice and not um, inadvertently uh, subject him to any external moral standards. And uh, in these last nights uh, of Ramadan, you know, we really need to increase seeking refuge from the fire uh, in our dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, may, may Allah accept, accept from, from us all. Ameen. And, uh, and that's it. Uh, with that, I conclude. Thank you very much indeed, Basim. I just wanted to ask just one question. Uh, there are many questions one could ask, but I don't want to take up more of your time. But in your experience of khutbas, of sermons that um, imams give in mosques, throughout i don't know the middle east or in north america or europe is that is is hell still a subject that is mentioned in sermons and i ask this because in the christian world in my experience whatever denomination you go to be evangelical or roman catholic or anglican or whatever it's pretty much absent completely absent hell is never mentioned um is that the case in, Isla in Islamic sermons, or, or, or is there still a, a, an awareness of the... Because obviously it's something the Quran talks about quite frequently. So um, is it something that's mentioned in sermons in the Muslim world? Um, uh, I haven't really conducted like, uh, you know, you know, I, I do have a, a market research background uh, professionally. So okay. uh, speaking as a researcher, I haven't really done in, uh, a proper survey, uh, okay. so to speak, uh, to, 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 to answer that. Uh, you know, uh, with, with a lack of, uh, with, with, with the level of certainty. But I do think if you speak to several people, and I've seen several people say this, that there has been a, no a noticeable decline in lectures on the subject, right. even online. Like, forget sermons in the Middle East and whatnot. I, I, yeah, like, online, online lectures, um, uh, you know, uh, whether they're, 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 they're lectures of sermons or... Um, or, or pre-recorded lectures in a given Islamic centers, that there has been a no noticeable decline mm. of speaking uh, on this subject. Mm. Or even if it is brought up, 
it is brought up in a very minor way and then overshadowed by then overemphasizing uh, Allah's mercy. So, you know, dedicate 90% of the, of the lecture to talking about Allah's mercy and maybe dedicate only 10% to, right. uh, to, to, to Allah's uh, vengeance and wrath. Um, so uh, uh, I, would see, uh, I, would, I would say probably anecdotally, um, there probably it has been a, a noticeable decline. I can't say for certain. I, I haven't surveyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know everything that's out there. I'm not surveying uh, all uh, the out there. But um, I think if you ask a number of people, it'll be interesting if you actually ask your, your, your viewers and your readers well, whether, yeah, whether they yeah. think that's the case. It'll be yeah, interesting to indeed, see what indeed. they say. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, just an observation of my own. Uh, if you look at the entire Bible, the Christian Bible from Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, which figure more than any other in the entire Bible speaks about hell the most? By far, by far. And the answer is actually very simple. Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, and mm. In the sayings attributed to him, at least in the uh, the early Gospels, he speaks about hell more than anyone else. The dangers of hellfire, the reality of hell, the, the, uh, the dangers of judgment, of heaven and hell in parable form, in explicit apocalyptic or eschatological language. It's there over and over and over again. And I mention this because Christian churches, as, as I've mentioned, I think, I think surveys have been done, uh, no longer mentions this, and yet it's in the Gospels. It's on the lips of Jesus, uh, purportedly, uh, by far more than anyone else, more than Paul, more than James, Peter, whatever, certainly more than the prophets on the Old Testament. So that, that is a sobering fact as, as, as well. So the, the Jesus and Muhammad, upon him, both be peace, are both in agreement on this subject in terms of the realities of the afterlife and heaven and hell. Very much so, it, it, it appears to me anyway. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting fact, thank you for sharing that. So thank you. In conclusion, thank you very much, uh, Bassam Zawadi, for your time and your your scholarly uh, exposition and presentation of this uh, fascinating uh, uh, problem of hell, as as you call it. And as I've already mentioned several times, I will link to your work uh, underneath. Uh, Call to monotheism is... Uh, it's been around for years and years. I remember 10 yeah. years ago uh, using this. It's, a, it's an amazing resource. Um, it's got a, a search engine. You can dip into it, all sorts of subjects to do with everything, to do with the Abrahamic face and so on. Uh, it's a comedia page uh, and also your Islamic discourses page where you write very regularly on contemporary subjects. Um, I, I personally follow that and get much benefit from that. And I expect many viewers will uh, benefit from that as well. So thank you very much, Bassam, for your time and your expertise. Thank you so much, Paul. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.